There's a lot of buzz in the world about the second quantum revolution and how it will produce radical change in this 21st century. There is no barrier to actually building a quantum computer. There's no bit of physics that we don't know about. He should know. He's the Provost and Chair of Experimental Physics at Imperial College, Dr Ian Wormsley. And though it seems the physics we know, it's the engineering advancements that he's now eagerly awaiting. The big prize is things like exponential speed up with cryptanalysis, the famous Shor algorithm. There are big prizes to be had with quantum, but big challenges too, like potential breaches in cryptographic security systems. We found a chief technology officer at a startup who's preparing for that battle. It's the old adage, fight fire with fire, so why not fight quantum with quantum? There's a lot to digest in this episode of Innovations Uncovered. Let's start with a fundamental understanding of this complicated topic with Imperial College Provost Dr Ian Wormsley. Ian, first of all, thank you ever so much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. We, we very much appreciate you coming on, so thank you very much. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's great to have the opportunity. So uh, quantum computing. So the thing that struck me when I started looking at uh, this almost was the nature of the press releases that get sent out. You know, you'd think if you were, uh, if, you know, if you'd stumbled on a on a rock music concert, you know, the sort of hyperbole and the, and the hype around it seems to be quite incredible. So do you think if this is more hype than substance? Well, I think it's always it's always risky when you've got an exciting new field that uh, there's a lot of exuberance about it in anticipation of what might happen. But I think there is underpinning it a substance. We have over the past 30 years, a very large community of people, gradually chipped away at all of the underpinning science and the physics, which leads everybody to believe that there is no barrier to actually building a quantum computer. There's no bit of physics that we don't know about so far. Uh, that says we won't be able to build one. Nevertheless, the engineering constraints are extremely fierce, and I think there's no guarantee that we'll be able to overcome all of them. So it's that balance, I think, that's important. If you could take it back a step for us, could you summarise for us what the difference is between quantum computing and, and classical computing? Certainly. The essence of modern digital computing is that you can build a machine, called a Turing machine, which allows you to solve any problem that is computable. And that is translated in the modern idiom into digital computing machines where you encode your information in bits, binary digits of zero or one. If we think about that model translated into a quantum computer, what we have from quantum physics is the idea that these bits can be in superpositions of zero and one, which is a state that's just impossible for any classical computer. So it's really the change of the design principles from classical physics to quantum physics, which underpins this revolution. So that idea of superposition is right at the heart of what makes quantum computers more powerful. Is it possible to say how much more powerful a quantum computer is than a physical computer, potentially? Yes, in, in various ways. So the, the standard way to think about this is to say, well, OK, let me say I've got a problem that I want to solve. I write some algorithm, I run that on the computer, and, uh, and then I say, OK, if the input is, say, 8 bits long, 
my computer takes whatever it is, a millisecond to run. If I now make it nine bits long, how long does it now take? Uh, two milliseconds, uh, a second. And if I now make it 256 bits long at the input, how long does it take now? And so if you map how long that computer takes to run uh, versus the scale of the input, you sort of have a map of the power of the computer. And what you find is that there are certain problems that we don't know how to solve in an efficient way on a classical computer. What that means is that the time taken to solve the problem might go up as the exponential of the number of bits. Because of the change in the fundamental design of a quantum computer, some of those problems you can map onto things that scale in the polynomial time, so they're much more efficient. And in that sense, you, you might hear the words, there's an exponential speed up for this algorithm. And that's, that's a really massive speed up, and that's the fastest speed up we know of. And at the moment, it applies to a small number of problems. But you can still get significant speed ups, not exponential, but quite significant enhancements for a much wider range of problems. And that's still quite valuable. So you said at the beginning, uh, it was very interesting, you said at the beginning that uh, from a physics perspective, there aren't uh, necessarily barriers that uh, you can see to uh, to having a, a quantum computer. Where are we now in terms of developing a quantum computer? Because there's been lots of people, they've been Google and uh, have brought out press releases, IBM, saying that they now have a, a quantum computer. Then other people will say, well, you know, that's not the case. So, so, so where are we now with quantum computers? Well, let's say the sort of two ends, if you like. The major or a major breakthrough in building a quantum computer is that you're trying to build a palpably quantum machine at a tangible scale. Uh, so you'll probably be aware of the very famous Schrodinger's cat paradox or Schrodinger's cat hypothesis or thought experiment. And the, the strange thing about that that Schrodinger wanted to emphasize is here's a big object like a cat that we never think about in being in a quantum state. And yet we're actually trying to build a machine that's as big as a cat or bigger that is in a quantum state. So the key reason that you find that turns out to be hard is that as soon as that cat interacts with its environment, that machine is embedded in the warm world, it tends to lose its quantum properties by interacting with the environment. And so there's an engineering piece. You have to isolate that machine very carefully, but just enough so you can control it. Uh, but you also have to build error-correcting types of, uh, of, of codes. And the big step forward was showing understanding how to do that in the quantum domain. Now, the overhead for running those codes started out to be extremely high. But over the past couple of decades, people have found much more efficient way to build code. So that's brought down the scale of the machine you need to a, a tangible sort of level. At the same time, the engineering of building individual qubits that you can control well and isolate into a format that you can start to build many of them has improved dramatically. So you pointed to the IBM and Google machines that uh, I think 20 years ago people would have said, oh gosh, that's impossible. But that engineering, that technology has really moved on a pace. So the scale up from the hardware side is improving. 
the scale down from the uh, error correction and, and mitigation is uh, also improving. And those things are close enough together, you can see how they touch. Still, getting up to the scale where you can build a full machine is still not, still not quite there yet. How long do you think it will take before we do get to a point where we can build a full machine? Because whilst it's very exciting, we've all been in these positions where, you know, the, the future is very exciting, but the future is not here yet. And, you know, we never quite get to the future as is promised. Well, Stephen, you've always got something to strive for, haven't you? Uh, and that's, that's important. Uh, I, you know, it's hard to predict when we get a fully scalable, fault-tolerant quantum computer that can run any program you, you throw at it. Uh, you know, I would, I would guess that's decade or two away. But I, I think whilst we need to focus on that as a long-term objective, I think the important piece will be to look at the early applications and those, are, I think, are more likely to be specialist processes, things that do particular tasks better than a, a classical processor can, but probably work in collaboration with a current high-performance computer to add some functionality and add some leverage onto, onto that technology. And I think those are much closer. I think we'll start to see those in the next few years. Give us an idea of some of those, uh, some of those applications. There are sort of a range of, of things that uh, people are thinking about. So at, at the one end, you know, the big prize is things like exponential speed up with cryptanalysis, the famous Shor algorithm. A much bigger class of problems are related to search and graph-based problems. And those map onto a lot of things like logistics. So you know, whether you're... Uh, Amazon drone can deliver your parcel more efficiently or whether your electric vehicle can undertake the optimal route that it needs for, for, um, for travel. Those kinds of things, I think, are going to be uh, in the near term, along with the very powerful and perhaps the original driver, conceptual driver for a quantum computer, which is the simulation of materials and molecules, which have big implications for you know, lightweight structures uh, for aircraft or low-carbon vehicles um, or for uh, designing new molecules that may be better drugs or better assays or what have you. So I think those are the kind of ranges of things that we're looking at. When we're talking about some of these things, how much of it do you think is um, just being able to do what we can already do faster and how much of it is being able to do things that we just can't do at the moment? I suppose those two are in some ways intertwined, right? So, so if you say, I've got a program that, that runs exponentially faster, you, know, you still have to beat the best current classical machines, and those are increasing in power and size. So in a sense, it's a moving target and, and, and an adaptable target. So I think of it in those terms rather than as an absolute. But it's very clear that if you've got that exponential improvement in in what the uh, algorithm to do then you can sort of look forward and say you know within any conceivable future there's never going to be a classical machine that can can solve this problem in the lifetime of the universe then i think you can say okay well there's a clear thing that we can do new that you couldn't do any other way and that, that might come in in the simulation of of molecules as well you know get get a molecule that's big enough you you cannot do it on, on any conceivable uh, future generation classical machine. 
One of the areas that uh, people say make a big difference to is uh, healthcare and the discovery of new drugs. Is that an area where, where, where this will you know, be important? Well, uh, that, that's back to Feynman's original conceptual driver. You know, what, he, what he realized was he was trying to simulate large quantum systems on a, a classical computer. And he, he saw this challenge that the bigger the quantum system you tried to simulate, the harder it was. And, uh, you know, the, his, the refulgence of his genius was to turn that on its head and say, well, wait a minute, if I can't simulate it, that must mean in some sense it has more computing power than my machine. Let's see if we can harness that. But it's that simulation of materials that it'll be the driver for new drug discovery or new receptor discovery or whatever it is, you know, protein docking for, uh, for um, viral uh, uh, intervention. That, that's the kind of thing you should be able to simulate on these, these machines. One of the other uh, subjects we've been looking at for this uh, series is uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, we've been looking at uh, two things, really, about uh, you know, computers as they get faster and the ability to process data, but also the point you were making earlier about when a computer actually has to enter, if you like, inverted commas, the real world and, and interact, and interact uh, with us. Uh, do you think uh, quantum computers will make a difference to artificial intelligence, given the you know the ability to solve problems that uh, a classical computer might struggle with. Well, I think it's it's an interesting question, and I don't think there's a very clear answer to it yet. So, where people are at the moment is exploring some applications of machine learning, where it's possible to identify speed ups using quantum algorithms and quantum computers. And that there do seem to be some advantages there. I think understanding whether those are of the sort of polynomial or exponential improvement is, is the next step. So again, there may be some areas where quantum adds a capability to AI, but I, I think it's, it's way too early to make any prediction about whether it is a transformative change for the field overall or not. What are some of the ethical considerations when it comes to... Because you're talking very much about the, the near-term future, the medium future. What are some of the ethical considerations that we have to think about? Well, uh, they're probably not that much different than any other highly advanced technology in that we probably can't foresee all of the uses to which it will be put. But there are clearly considerations around national security. You know, if you've got computers that can break your cryptographic encoding schemes, then you need to be concerned about the secrecy of your information. I should say that there's lots of work going on to find ways to encode information that are not susceptible to quantum algorithm breaking. I suppose on the other side, if you can make molecules or design molecules, you can design them not only for beneficial purposes, uh, you can probably also design them for non-beneficial purposes. So you'd, you'd like to make sure that the capability is reasonably well distributed and that the framework for its use is, uh, is well defined. And therefore, I think it's a conversation that we as a, as a globe, as a set of nations pursuing this need to have early on. I mean, that's interesting. And part of the issue uh, potentially is the amount of money that it's cost to develop some of these systems. And, you know, we're talking about Google, we're talking about IBM, you know, we're talking about uh, 
Western governments, uh, does that sort of not feel that, uh, you know, the the richer parts of the world are going to be at a big advantage here and therefore just, you know, increase that advantage? Yeah, it's a, uh, that's also a very good question. You know, I, I think at the stage we're at at the moment, it's too early for there to be a direct market-driven solution to this. So it does require public investment or investment from from companies that have the resources to speculate a bit. And that probably does leave out uh, some countries of the world. But I think that it would be important as these public investments start to bear some fruit that we're able to engage those countries in a way that enables them to get some benefit and to get some understanding of what's happening. I guess my last question is a completely unfair question, really, which is given that you have uh, very clearly, you know, said that, uh, you know, we're at the early stage of much of this and, and it's hard to see sort of how it can develop. And I'm not asking you to, to look at 20, 30 years down the line, but over the next five or 10 years, well, how, would you see, how would you see this developing? Well, I think the, what will happen in the next few years is that we will start to hone in on an architecture for quantum computing that people think is likely to be the leading technology. At the moment, there's still, there's still probably sort of five or so in the mix, and three of those look really promising, and two look a bit more long-term. So I think there'll be a bit of a shakedown there. I expect there's a, there's a huge number of, of startups at the moment, which is great. It's a very exciting field. I expect we'll see some consolidation as the hardware becomes clearer and the range of applications that we know there could be an advantage for looks clear. So I think it'll start to move into a territory which is more well-defined, so perhaps less need for hype because we'll, we'll have a much clearer picture of what we're doing at that point. Thanks ever so much indeed for coming on and talking to us about it. We're very grateful for your time here. Thanks very much indeed. Stephen, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. This conversation triggered more questions about finance and cybersecurity. That curiosity led me to startup tech company Quantropy, an Ottawa-based group that's preparing for the future, a future that surely involves quantum computing. Unlike Y2K, where we knew the t date and time of the transition that would break computers, Y2Q or Y2Quantum isn't it, we don't know exactly when, and in fact, it'll happen in some secret government installation long before the rest of us know about it. Now, this is a conversation you don't want to miss. Our episode continues now with Quantropy Chief Technology Officer, Michael Redding. Michael, first of all, thank you very much indeed for uh, taking the time to speak to us today, to join us. We really do appreciate it. Well, my pleasure entirely. Thanks for having me. Michael, can we start off? I mean, we're going to talk about uh, quantum computing and uh, cybersecurity, but but can we start off? What's your view on on when and if we're likely to get a quantum computer? What sort of time frames are we talking about? Well, they're here. It's it's it's, kind of, it's like everything quantum. It's both here and not here. In that we have demonstrable quantum computing capabilities. Um, the challenge is a true, complete, universal, scalable, is still a little bit of an engineering uh, challenge. But there's been, you know, academic papers from both Google as well as other researchers around the world where they've shown what's called quantum supremacy, 
where for a very specific mathematical problem, a quantum computer dramatically outperforms any known classical computer. So we're one step into a, a journey in that we've got some, not enough, more's coming. So it's, and, and if we've, if anything of the last 40, 50 years of compute have shown us, the engineering folks tend to outpace our estimates of when we're going to have bigger, stronger, faster machines. So, you know, like, you know, whatever it believes Moore's law, which is fairly linear or some exponential curve, it's coming faster every day. So we have, it's real now, it'll be more applicable and more universal every day over the next few years. So when it comes to uh, cybersecurity, uh, you know, when I read about uh, quantum and uh, cybersecurity, it, I, you know, it feels to me that it's almost framed as if quantum is a problem and quantum is uh, a solution. So why will quantum have a major impact on cybersecurity? Well, uh, unfortunately, like everything else, we can't always have nice things and that people get involved and they take things that can do great things for humanity and find ways to use them for nefarious purposes. And the challenge is a quantum computer doesn't care. It just does, you know, computation. And Shor's algorithm, which was first published in the 1990s, proposed a mathematical basis to factor prime numbers and showed that a quantum computer would be very good at that. And that's great because that's got a lot of mathematical use cases. Problem is, or the challenge is, that our current Encryption schemes, particularly um, asymmetric encryption, as evidenced by RSA, uh, is the most standard way for a secure session. Every time you log into any website where you have HTTPS, that S means secure, we use asymmetric encryption specifically or typically RSA. The problem is that's based on prime numbers. And because that's a hard classical problem, it's been great for 20 plus years. But when our friend the quantum computer is sufficiently powerful and can run Shor's algorithm, unfortunately, it breaks all existing RSA encryption. And therein lies the problem. So it's an unfortunate, the strength of the quantum computer happens to exploit a, a weakness in current typical cybersecurity. But it's also framed as part of a solution, isn't it? I know your own uh, company is actually actively working in this area now to use quantum to actually help people in the field of cybersecurity. Well, you know, it's the, you know, the old adage, fight fire with fire. So why not fight quantum with quantum, right? Because if, if the quantum computer itself represents a scale up and scale out of computational capabilities, in some case, exponential more com computational power, then you want your encryption or your security to also have be exponentially stronger. And, you know, in some cases where we've seen some approaches to fight quantum with classic using more and more exotic mathematics, the problem then becomes the computational load on your mobile phone or your computer to run that very complicated math such that it becomes inefficient or impractical. Whereas if you can express your security in a quantum manner, now you've got the elegance and strength of that native quantum ability. And as a result, it's a more natural fit and could potentially be retrofitted to legacy systems as well. And so but it's finding that bridge between the exotic world of quantum and the more mundane world of classic. Therein lies uh, the opportunity and you know a pretty grand intellectual and mathematical challenge. And Quantropy, we believe we've, we sit right at the heart of that solution. 
Before we get on to the challenge itself, I'm, I'm actually just quite interested in what you say there. Uh, you've been in the field of, of ventures for, for, you know, for quite a while. Do you actually think that uh, things like uh, quantum and cybersecurity actually opens up a sort of new market for, uh, for innovative uh, companies such as your own? Well, absolutely, because unfortunately, fortunately, depends on which side of the equation you're on, you know, security is perpetual. It's an arms race. Right, because surprisingly, why do you know why do criminals rob banks? Because that's where the money is. So why do you know cyber criminals attack data centers? Because there's value to be to be had and stolen, whether it's intellectual property or straight up money. And so it's it's never going to stop. And so um, and there's no magic bullet that will give us this perpetual, permanent, perfect shield against all forms of attack. Because again, the bad guys keep coming up with new techniques. So therefore, it's an evergreen marketplace going back to, you know, 80s and 90s when, you know, some of today's giants were formed. And then when a new wave, the internet and web 2.0 came along, the next wave of, of security giants were born. You know, if we go to web 3.0 and or quantum computing, you know, call it web X.0, you know, we'll, we'll start to see the next generation emerge. And of course, some of the mega players will maintain their industry strength, but also you can imagine that upstarts, will, you know, like there is every generation, some upstarts will capitalize on the market change and the market transition and become the giants of tomorrow. Looking at, if I could just looking at some of the threats, you know, because uh, the, the White House very recently came out, didn't it, and recognised that, uh, you know, for, for government and uh, is a threat and, and requested and required government departments to, to, to figure out what they, you know, are going to do about it. Do you think that's right? Do you think that uh, quantum uh, provides a, a, a cybersecurity threat when it comes to government? Well, absolutely, because there's two two issues. One is the near-ish future, and again, depends on exactly what time frame you subscribe to, a quantum computer of sufficient strength will break your current encryption key uh, envelope and therefore be able to access your data. But that day, whichever day it is in the future, is one threat. The other threat is what we call steal now, crack later. Because if I can steal your data that's been classically secured, put it in my data warehouse and member storage is cheap. So I can warehouse terabytes and petabytes of your data, even if it's encrypted, wait for the day that a big enough quantum computer exists, crack it open, unleash my AI to read it all and find the juicy secrets that are in those petabytes. You know, so the challenge is it's like, you know, it's from the movie. If you ever saw the science fiction movie, 12 monkeys, you're all dead and you don't know it because a visitor comes back from the future, well, your data is all stolen and you don't know it. And so if you look at the U.S. federal government, where for top secret data, they have a 25-year security requirement. If every piece of data recorded today and encrypted today can be stolen and cracked 10 years from now, that's 15 years short of its goal of being protected, right? Stealth bomber plans, nuclear codes, you know, compromising photographs of politicians, all of those have value a decade from now when there will be enough computing power to crack open. So steal now, crack later is the imminent and immediate threat, let alone breaking of tomorrow's keys when the when you know in real time. So it's not something you can just wait a couple of years and then deal with it. And also because, you know, if you just whether it's government, but think of like the average Fortune 500 company. They have 
five to 7,000 IT systems, you know, different applications that run their business. Every one of those uses some number of cryptographic capabilities to protect and secure it. That's five to 7,000 things you have to go fix. And do you even know where they all are, right? When you use, you know, a product from Microsoft, do you know what's encryptions inside it? When you write a mobile app, do you know what encryption's inside that? So for a government CIO or a private sector CIO, they've got a huge inventory challenge, the likes of which we saw back in Y2K, as well as even the migration to cloud, as everyone talks about, oh, move from private data center to cloud. You got to inventory everything to know what you, what can move versus what you have to refactor. And in some industries like financial services, some of that code dates back to the 60s. Think about that. So there's there's a big remediation effort to patch all the holes, but you got to find the holes first. You got to find all the instances of crypto and then figure out an upgrade path. So that's why starting now makes sense because of both steal now, crack later. And also it's going to take literally years. I mean, we're in year 16, 17 of the Amazon cloud and companies are still beginning their journey to cloud because of the refactoring, because of all that technical debt. So it's a upgrade that will take a decade or more to do fully. And as a result, no time like the presence to, to start even the inventory process, let alone the correction process. I mean, you touched there on the financial sector, and obviously that's a, a very scary thought. You know, the world's markets and all the data that uh, financial transactions that are done online every every single day. But uh, it's not just big companies, is it? And, and 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 when you talk about you know all the remediation that needs to be done and all the the holes that need to be filled, you know, you can maybe think that governments and big companies might have the resources to do that. But what do what do normal sized companies? What do I do about that situation? I mean, how does a normal sized company go about uh, confronting this issue? Well, and I would say that generally a, a normal sized, right, the small and medium enterprise, you generally will use packaged software. You don't write your own custom applications. You'll use a video conferencing app from a major vendor. You'll use an office productivity suite from a major vendor. You'll use uh, accounting from a major you know, vendor. So you'll, you'll, you'll buy or or subscribe to the products that run your business. So for you, what you can become is an intelligent consumer and say, okay, well, if I'm picking the two, two you know, tax preparers, which one has upgraded to quantum security and which one hasn't, right? If I'm using an you know, office productivity suite, which one will protect my data you know, with a quantum secure versus not? You know, if you think about it again, a lot of websites when, and browsers, when they transitions to the HTTPS, you, as the user of that website, didn't have to do anything. You just got a warning. Hey, this site isn't running modern security. Are you sure you want to go there? So the good news is you won't have to do it yourself so much as make intelligent purchasing choices or, you know, and, you know, sourcing choices over which platforms you use. So you can upgrade your posture through the products you use versus having to fix it yourself. I guess one of the other questions I've got is around cryptocurrencies and the, 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 the blockchain. What, what, what are the particular vulnerabilities when it comes to cryptocurrencies and the blockchain to uh, uh, quantum uh, cybercrime? Well, it's funny thing is it's in the title, crypto. What part of it is crypto? It's, well, it's cryptographic, right? That's 
actually the exact nature of what makes, you know, it has all these distributed properties and all these other attributes um, and smart contracts, blah, blah, blah. But at the, at the heart of it, it's based on cryptographic algorithms, everything to, to authenticate that a transaction is valid, to do proof of work, to sign it and say this, you know, who, who really did this transaction. So digital signature, proof of work, let alone just the actual transaction themselves. And you read all the time about people's wallets getting compromised. Well, so strong passwords and strong keys uh, are, are critical. So all the underpinning of blockchain is cryptographic functions. And if those cryptographic functions are attackable, well, then you can shake the, the foundation. And especially because a blockchain is forever, right? It rolls forward. It, it theoretically, I post one time to a, you know, a permanent chain and that, that transaction is out there for the rest of time because everything, it's a chain, right? The links build onto each other. And if I break a link early on, the whole chain tumbles. And so the challenge is, again, steal now, crack later. It's post to the chain now, crack later, break the whole chain and so, or create chaos. So the grand challenge for today's blockchain strategies is going to be not only how do I fix it going forward, but how do I remediate past transactions so that they're retroactively repaired? And I, I think that's going to be a grand challenge of likes of which I don't think we've even really contemplated the exact nature of what that's going to mean. And are we going to have to fork new chains and do a whole bunch of stuff? And so, you know, the risk is more the integrity long-term, you know, and it's going to be a little while yet before immediate current transactions are threatened, but it's the long history that gives the chain its credibility. That's what's going to be a major re-engineering, refactoring requirement, at least in my opinion. I mean, kind of finally, but it's a fascinating point you raise with the, you know, steal now, crack later, isn't it? Because, you know, in our series, we've been looking at AI, we've been looking at quantum computing, we've been looking at precision medicine. And with a lot of these things, it's just as you said earlier in our chat, Michael, you know that we have some of it now, but, you know, there'll be a lot more to, to come if, if you like. And people sitting there might be thinking, well, to actually get a quantum computer, you know, it's maybe 2030, it's, it's, it's down the path. And so therefore, some of the challenges, right, that we've been talking about, yeah, they're important, but they're not today's challenges. So have we as a society, have we caught up to the, to the urgency of this, do you think? I would, I'd, I guess I'd say no, we haven't. I think people who eat, breathe, and sleep security are beginning to. Um, even you know, in my own travels, as I've talked to people that are, you know, leading lights in cybersecurity, it's still a little bit of a. It's off in the distance. It's in the gray mist because, unlike Y two K, where we knew the t date and time of the transition that would break computers, Y two Q or Y two quantum. Isn't it? You know, we don't know exactly when, and in fact, it'll happen in some secret government installation long before the rest of us know about it. So th that ambiguity, I think, you know, blunts the the reality. But it just comes down to: Do you have any data today that, if in ten years from now someone read it, it would hurt you or help them? It would be detrimental. Then you're already too late, right? Unless you go back and re-encrypt it. Right. If you don't, but if it's been stolen, it's already stolen. It's already gone. If you have a data breach today, all that data is 100% compromised, no matter what you've done to it. 
And therefore, can you afford anything more to be stolen? And, you know, I think one of the adages, especially in the private sector, is that the average CIO, average CEO's tenure is three years. So anything that's not going to affect corporate earnings in the next three years, you can kind of punt. But I look at that as kind of an abdication of stewardship. If you really are a steward of your enterprise, of your business, of your customers, you'll say, this is you know, a fundamental threat. It's actively being exploited daily with, with what, as data is being stolen. And therefore, I've got to do my you know, fiduciary responsibility to protect my company, my shareholders, and my, my customers right? By doing what I can do today. So I think because of the ambiguity of when the bomb goes off, that blunts it. But those that are really focused on their company and their customers or their, or their government and their country, they're, they're the ones who are waking up. And that's, again, I full credit to the Biden administration. They didn't say fix it, but they said at least get a sense of how much you'll have to fix in the next, you know, 180 days. So, you know, journey of a thousand miles starts with a first, you know, inspection. And so I think that that's a wake up call to the universe, uh, you know, of private and public sector that the time to start is now before it becomes dire. Michael, thanks ever so much. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. It's fascinating, if a little bit worrying, but uh, fascinating nevertheless. So thank you very much. My pleasure entirely. Has quantum changed your life yet? Perhaps not. But what about the practice of personalised medicine? Because the conversation about genetics and genomics is often quite simplified and the technology is cheap, people sometimes, not surprisingly, think, oh, well, I'll do a test. Precision medicine is the next innovation we're uncovering on this third instalment in our series. A discussion with Dr. Annika Lucasen, Director of the Centre for Personalised Medicine at the University of Oxford. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and follow to be alerted when new episodes are released. Until next time, I'm Stephen Horne and you're listening to On The Edge.